is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, and we've done several, Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and now we join Alex Cortez, who brings us our latest in the Rule of Law series. I tell more people today that if a dairy farmer goes to a psychiatrist and lays on that bench and that psychiatrist asks him questions before you're done, he's going to want to commit you. Because there's got to be something wrong with you. To be clear, this Maryland dairy farmer Randy Sowers is, including himself, in that category too. There absolutely has to be something wrong with somebody that deals with what we deal with every day for no more than we get out of it. We bought these farms three years ago. I mean, it's just going to be a burden on me and my kids to get these farms paid for. And then if their kids, you know, decide to stay in farming, one of these days they might, you know, get some benefit from them. But right now the farms are costing us more than we can make off of them. There's farmers dropping over. I think the bank sent 10 notices out last week of foreclosures. We've got a neighbor up here they foreclosed on in January. It's like land. You don't make farmers usually. I mean, farmers are born and raised, and they know what to do, and they have the heart to do it. I mean, most people, you know, wouldn't even consider doing what we do, and it's seven days a week. I mean, you don't get a break. For 38 years that I've been doing this, I've gotten up as early as 11.15 at night to milk. Wait, did he just say get up at night? Who gets up at night? Besides folks, of course, who have night shifts, but that's not Randy's situation. Well, I try to get to bed by 7 or 7.30. It's pretty hard when it's still light outside, but that's what I have to do. In the early years, I didn't have any help. I was getting at 11.15, but then I'd get done about 7 or 8 in the morning. Then I'd sleep till 10 o'clock and get up and get back to work. But the last 20 years, we've been getting up at midnight, me and my wife, and we milk the first shift of cows, and we usually get back home about 4 o'clock. We don't milk them all anymore, but we do milk the first shift because what I found out was over the years when I depend on somebody else to get in there early, they don't show up, and then it makes the whole day go bad. So. I just decided I might as well just do it myself. That way you get the day started and the people supposed to, you know, come after me, they better be there. I'm gonna go get them out of bed because I know where they are. Since we retired in December, we're gonna milk five mornings a week, but the other two we do farmer's markets. It's pretty nice through the winter though because we don't have the one Sunday market through the winter and I got to sleep in on Sunday morning. (laughs) Some idea of retirement. (laughs) And a couple of years ago, his government tried to throw him an early retirement party. So we were had a store on the farm, and we were doing farmer's market, and we were handling a lot of cash. And we just deposited it in the bank. I always wondered whether the government should ever show up someday. I wanted to know where all the cash came from, which didn't bother me because I knew it was all legal, so I didn't worry about it too much. Paid taxes on it, just like anything else. I mean, we were depositing it in the bank every week. Uh, This summer, we were doing probably five farmer's markets a week, and we were bringing in somewhere around that 10,000 mark every week. I mean, sometimes we went over that, and sometimes we had special events. And this one particular time, we had our festival, so we had a lot of money to deposit that week, and she went in. She being Randy's bride and partner, Karen. When I tried to deposit, it was 
twelve or fourteen thousand dollars or something like that, and the bank took it. But the teller told her, you know, it would help her out if you keep these deposits under ten thousand dollars, and she would not fill out paperwork. So that's what my wife did. Not knowing that a federal law called the Bank Secrecy Act requires banks to report all transactions $10,000 and up to the federal government. A law originally intended to make it easier to find folks who were laundering money, running illegal drug and gambling operations, and to charge them with much larger crimes. But it still was unwise for this bank teller to have the Sowers do this because technically, although rarely pursued, what they did was an illegal act on its own. What they call structuring. Structuring your deposits so that they're below the reporting requirement. So it was definitely every Monday she was paying, putting in $9,500 to $9,900 in cash in this account for 32 weeks. So we had a lawyer on staff at that time, and he was there that morning. February 29th, 2012. For some reason, he just left. And a store called me and said there was some government people over there that needed to talk to me. And I went in there was two treasury agents. You know, showing me their badges and they had their guns on and, you know, one talked to me about a bank account. So I tried to call my lawyer right away and he didn't answer the phone. So I, like I said, I still didn't have a problem because I didn't think I had anything to hide. So I went and sat down at the office and they started asking me questions. And I don't know what the questions were anymore except for the last one they asked me. He said, where'd you get all this cash? And they knew about the Sowers' cash because through a controversial legal maneuver called civil asset forfeiture, they had already seized his bank account with $63,000 in it at the time without even convicting him of a crime, which turns upside down a fundamental principle of the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Randy was made guilty before anything was proven. Although these IRS agents didn't tell Randy that they had seized his bank account, yet they still needed to trap him. And um, I said, well, you know, we do store and farmer's markets and you know, some weeks we get as much as twelve or $14,000. Well, they didn't ask me any more questions after that because that's the only answer, the question they needed me to answer to say that sometime I had more than 10 and I wasn't depositing it. The government agents tricked Randy and got him to admit to committing a crime that he didn't even know was a crime. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Sowers' story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our rule of law story on the federal government seizing the bank account of a dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, and for simply following his bank teller's request to make deposits below a a $10,000 threshold that legally requires her to file lengthy paperwork to the government. Let's pick up where we last left off. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? Well, in 1994, the Supreme Court said that the answer was no. That the word willfully in the Bank Secrecy Act should be interpreted as a person who knew that it was illegal to structure payments below the reporting threshold. It wasn't simply enough to show that the defendant knew about the reporting requirement, which the Sowers didn't really know either. The teller just told them that it would help her avoid the paperwork. But this ruling was unacceptable to government prosecutors, and they convinced Congress to amend the wording of the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could prosecute Americans like Randy who don't know that structuring is illegal. So they had me on structuring because not that I knew there was a law that I said I had to deposit every cent I got every week. Maybe I spent it on something else that week. And it still didn't have more than $10,000, but it really didn't matter to them. And they were pretty nice, I guess nice. But they said, you know, we can see you're a legitimate business. We really don't think you're a laundry, money launderer or drug dealer or nothing like that. But now, since it's gone this far, you're going to have to go through the system to see if you can get your money back. Gone this far as their boss, then Maryland U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein, was already committed to the case. And there's no way that they thought that they could get him to back down on it. A judge had already issued a warrant for the seizure of Randy's bank account. Randy's money was this close to being theirs. Once they knew that I was not a drug dealer or a money launderer, they should have just gave me my money back and thanked me for my service to this country, and that would have been the end of it. But they don't, they got your money and they want it. And you know, over this period of time, it's not the IRS that gets a lot of that money. It's the local people that, you know, find this problem. They get their cut, too. Everybody gets their cut. That's how they make their budgets. So if they take all that money away, how are they going to pay their, you know, all these uh, things they get because of all the structuring money? And the Department of Justice in Maryland is particularly active in pursuing this structuring money. In the fiscal year 2011, Maryland brought 14 of the nation's 99 structuring cases, 14% of them, even though they only make up 1.8% of the nation's population. So supposedly, Maryland citizens are eight times more likely to be committing crimes than the rest of us, or something else, something else is going on. On Rod Rosenstein is on the record as saying that anti-structuring efforts are quote an increasing emphasis for the Justice Department, and there has been an influx of resources to investigate it. Thus, I'd be disappointed 
if there wasn't an uptick in prosecutions. So my lawyer called whoever the prosecutor was on the case. Rod Rosenstein actually was the Department of Justice in Maryland at the time. So I'd like to see him go to jail now, I'll go visit him. But he called him. One of Rod's deputies. He said, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate and, you know, we'll probably keep half that money. We might be able to negotiate that down some, but, you know, usually, you know, we'll negotiate some kind of a, a deal. Treating it all too casually, like it's negotiating something at a garage sale, not $30,000 of a business's of family's livelihood so somehow and i don't know how it all came down but there was another lawyer that showed up and he'd been you know working on this structuring thing for a long time but they all told me you know to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody about it well i didn't call the newspapers but when i went to the farmers markets that weekend everybody knew that the government stole my money Everybody walked up the table and they wanted to know how my week goes. I told them the story. <laughs> and they, they, they couldn't believe it. So it wasn't too long after that that uh, I got a call from the Baltimore City Paper and he was questioning me about, you know, this, because he saw the docs come out of the federal court in Baltimore. And I said, you know, I'd love to tell you this story, but my lawyer said, until we get this thing settled, I better just not say nothing. That's what the government wanted everybody to say nothing so they can steal your money and nobody knows what's going on. So uh, he said, well, you know, if that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm going to do this story and it don't look good on your part if I write from what the government says. So his government's allowed to speak about him, but they say that he's not allowed to respond? Because people already thought we'd done something wrong. I mean, everybody, her, her parents thought we'd done something wrong. I think my parents might have <laughs> thought we'd done something wrong. And so I told him the whole story. So <clears throat> when we got our settlement papers, you know, we knew from the case on the Eastern Shore with the uh, Taylor family, we knew what their settlement was, but my settlement was different. I was going to admit that I did something wrong in the settlement, and I wasn't going to do it. So when my lawyer called them, he says, because your client went to the press. And he sent us an email that said it. Rosenstein's deputy, Stefan Casella, actually wrote an email that they were treated differently because, quote, Mr. Taylor did not give an interview to the press, admitting as clear as day that the government is acting according to a rule of vengeance, not according to the American promise of the rule of law. So he said wasn't going to do be any negotiating. You know, they were keeping close to $30,000 and it wasn't any negotiating now since I went to the press. If we would have fought them, if we would have fought them, they would have got, took the whole $360,000 we deposited in that checking account that year. So that was another thing they were holding against us. They said, you can fight us, but you know, you're not going to win, and then we're going to want $360,000. This is what you call blackmail. 
Either pay us 30000 or we're going to come after you for more, 360000 And by the way, fighting us in court will cost you a lot more than 30000 so you might as well just pay us right now. A pretty good business to be in if you're the government. They can do this all day long and do. But not a great business proposition if you're Randy and Karen. Especially when you're trying to do your actual business of farming. It's a no-win situation for them. They lose no matter what. So the Sours decided to forfeit $30,000 of their seized money to the government and try to move on with their lives. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You can't fight them. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases, and my lawyer got me in contact with them, and they came out and we had a meeting about it. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens when liberty lawyers get involved, and that's what the Institute for Justice's lawyers are. They protect people's property rights from the government. And always remember why the Constitution was formed, because we all know that most of our cops and prosecutors are good guys. But the bad ones, and boy, there were some bad ones here, folks. And you know it, right? You know it. When we come back, the law on behalf of the citizens starts to take action. Randy Sauer's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will send you our five best stories of the week. And they'll be in transcript form, so you can read them or you can listen to them. And by the way, if you have your story about government power coming in on your life, if you've settled on an IRS form, if you settled for something when you didn't think you were guilty, Send those stories to us. We'll run them down because this is happening all over the country and it's happening a lot more than you think. Again, this is Our American Stories. When we return, the dairy farmer Randy Sowers shaken down by his own government, a guy just trying to get along every day like the rest of us. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we're back with the final portion of our rule of law story on the federal government seizing over $30,000 of dairy farmer Randy Sauer's money for simply following his own bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold. And now let's get back to the story. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. But it was probably a year or two later, well, I got a call from the House Ways and Means Committee and said they were 
they were having a hearing on structuring. You want to know if I would testify. And this was only like two or three days before, you know, the it happened. And I think, you know, they were trying to get people to testify, but they're still afraid to testify. Understandably afraid of putting the government's target on their back again. Randy told Congress that he would testify in their big city only 90 minutes away from his home, but one that the Sours didn't like to go to. Oh, and very, we delivered milk down there a couple times. But, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. So what we do, we'd milk and then we'd get in the car and we'd go down to the Institute for Justice uh, Arlington, Virginia. office in Arlington and we'd park and then sleep in the car for a couple hours so we didn't have to deal with the traffic. And then they would take us to the to D.C. for the hearings. Yeah, we ate high hops on the way down, but... It doesn't get any more American than that. Milking in the middle of the night, driving still in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. Then you got to make some time for IHOP. Then just a little bit of sleep in a parking lot while you don't shower before you testify before some congressmen who are in fancy suits and ties while you in a checkered short sleeve shirt No suit, no jacket, no tie. You take on your government. So me and two other guys testified, and that was an eye-opening experience, too. And all those those congressmen and senators on that committee, I mean, they were beating that guy from the IRS. But he could could take it and not ever answer a question. Just sit there like there was nothing, you know. It really wasn't me that did this, you know. It was somebody else, but they just kept passing the buck. So um, Institute for Justice filed something to get our money back. They filed a petition for remission or mitigation, which are requests for the government to relieve them from a past judgment. Institute for Justice's petition was clear. No American should have their money taken from them just because they deposited it in so-called wrong amounts that they didn't know were wrong. And over 10 months passed without a single response from the government. So to ramp up pressure, the House Ways and Means Committee, in a bipartisan fashion, both Democrats and Republicans were outraged by this story, called back both Randy and the government to testify again. That second House Ways and Means Committee meeting... And they were demanding that guy from Justice and IRS to give us our money back. Like I say, they were sitting there like it was just water off their back. They didn't care. But behind the scenes, they did care. They were made to care. They were sweating the negative attention this brought them. And finally, we got our money back, and we were probably the first ones that's ever gotten any, their total amount back. I don't know. They said they apologized. <coughs> they never apologized to us for anything. Five years. That's how long it took to get their money back. The Sours' money could have been put to use making their business more money, hiring more workers, and paying their workers more. But the government doesn't pay a fine or interest to account for this fact. 
to account for the fact that because of inflation, the Sours $30,000 became less than $30,000 while the government was holding it for them. So, I believe in God. I am where I am today because God tells me what to do and I listen to him. And the reason why, you know, I fight the government and nobody else will is two things in the Bible. Because God says, no hand held against you will prosper. And in the 23rd Psalm, it says, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that's what he does. It's just, you know, you have to win. Today, you hire lawyers, they're not out there to win. They're out there to get together and compromise and say, okay, if we do it this way, you'll make this much money and I'll make this much money. We don't have to fool around in court and file this paperwork, but we're all going to make money. But then nobody ever wins. And you have to win. This country that we know is not like it used to be. And it's going to be nothing is what it's going to be. It's going to be just like any other country. You're not going to have any rights. You're not going to run a business. And that's why Randy is so grateful that the Nonprofit Institute for Justice is there fighting to win. For him and for the over 200 other citizens whom the government had their backs up against the wall and couldn't afford to fight them until Institute for Justice took up their case at no cost to them and with no reward ever going to the nonprofit. Institute for Justice is a bunch of young lawyers that are concerned about this country. And I've met a good many of them and they all have the same outlook. I mean, they're not out there to make a lot of money. I, don't know, I have no idea how much money they make. I don't care. Most all their money comes in donations from people that like what they see and not people like me because I don't have a lot of money to give them. I mean, people think I have a lot of money. I mean, so now I live in a big house, but you know, the house came with the land we bought. You know, I didn't really want the house, it's too big. That's why I'm living there, just two of us, because nobody else wanted to live in it. But, you know, the people, what people think about farmers is, is ridiculous because they think you're rich because you got big machines and it costs a lot of money and that's why you're not rich because you got to have those machines to do what you do. And great work as always, Alex. And what a story. By the way, a major bank CEO confidentially told us that the government has essentially forced them into being their own private snooping army with their compliance departments having to mine their customers' accounts for what the government might deem suspicious activity, giving them no choice but to report many innocent citizens like Randy Sowers to the government for investigation. The CEO said that this forced snooping sweeps up far more information than anything that the NSA did related to phone records, and yet has received almost zero attention. And that's what we're doing here in Our American Stories, bringing this story to your attention There's also a big problem of selective prosecution here. The government has seized the bank accounts of innocent farmers like Randy Sowers, but refused to charge politicians like former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who was actually guilty of structuring his payments to prostitutes. And you bet he knew what structuring was. There's bipartisan legislation out there, folks, and it's sponsored by Democrats like Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee, and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz. And that doesn't happen too often. So that's how bad this prosecutorial abuse is, folks. Of course, that would change the statute 
so that you can't be charged for a crime that you don't know is a crime. It's called mens rea, folks. It's the heart of criminal law. If you don't know a crime's a crime, you can't be charged with it. This is Lee Habib, Randy Sauer's story, and thank goodness for the Institute for Justice. Look them up, folks. Give them some money. They do great, great work protecting property rights for Randy and maybe one day for people like you. Again, this is Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to the tramps and disco inferno and if you were around in the mid 70s or late 70s you couldn't go anywhere without hearing this without hearing staying alive disco ruled and disco was fun to dance to and it still is but for some music lovers oh disco just was the death of music and so you had this raging war in the cultures the rock people hated disco the disco people ha oh, they hated rockers and there was a line and if you lived in certain cities there could almost be violence over this line it was so crazy and today we're doing a a story about well uh something pretty interesting and something slightly different than our really sublime medal of honor storytelling we like to do the wacky and we're talking about something that happened on this day in history in the year 1979 that dealt disco a fatal blow. We just found out earlier that Alexander Hamilton was delivered a fatal blow, a bullet from Aaron Burr. He died the next day. And joining us to talk about this historic day that almost killed disco, Todd Stump, who was in Chicago at the time and remembers the experience. Todd, thanks as always for joining us. Well, thank you, and I have to say, you know, I uh, Alexander Burr, excuse me, Alexander Hamilton almost got a, you know, excuse me, got a bullet. I almost got decapitated by that very record that you opened with. Well, a, uh, Tramps, uh, the Tramps album uh, from uh, they were on Atlantic. It came flying off the upper deck at Comiskey Park, uh, caught a gust of wind, and came back and uh, smashed just over my head, and I still have it. 
Well, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to how that could have happened, and that is a great way to tease a story. A man was almost killed by a disco record, and I wasn't kidding when I said people were fighting over this stuff. So, Todd, before telling us about the near death experience you had, set the scene for our listeners. What was going on with disco in America at this time that led to this really remarkable day in history, which we're about to tell people? Well, you know, the first thing to remember is, you know, today it's it's typical that someone might have a Taylor Swift uh, song in their catalog along with uh, something by Metallica or something. But, you know, 1979, I don't think you could find anybody's record collection that would include both Ted Nugent and Donna Summer. No. Uh, when you went to a record store, you had $5 in your hand, and you had to pick a side. You had to pick a team. And once you invested... In that team, and say it was an Allman Brothers record, you really uh, in, invested emotionally with that as well. You wanted to uh, validate your decision, and and you took on a lot of kind of the trappings of that decision in terms of the way you dressed and and how you acted and what you liked and what you didn't. Um, today, when music is free, people don't have that kind of investment, and uh, it's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. Um, but they uh, they value music less, and they're not as attached to it as people were. Back in no, that is so true. If you if you were around from the from the sixties to even the nineties, you defined yourself by the things you didn't listen to. I mean, it was who do I hate? So there were guys who hated the Beatles, and there were guys who hated the Stones, and there weren't a lot of people who loved both. Not many. And then there was the hard rock, the heavy metal rock. There were the Springsteens and the Seegers right in the middle with Tom Petty. Then there were the Folkies. There were the Jackson Brown types, and you picked a poison. But people who had the Clash in their record collection did not have Donna Summer. You are so dead right about this. So take us to July 12, 1979. This day in history what on earth happened and at all places a baseball stadium talk about this well well, that was you know 1979 it was about 18 months after saturday night fever uh was released and disco was still ubiquitous the big record of that summer i think was do you think i'm sexy by rod stewart yeah, Rod Stewart had gone disco, if you remember. Mr. Rock and Roll faces Ron Wood, the lead guitarist, and this guy's doing Do You Think I'm Sexy to a disco beat. Well, it was it was really painful for was. rock guys because it was one of their own. He was a Benedict Arnold of rock. That's right. And <laughs> and he So that was that was all over the place. About the same time a local disc jockey by the name of Steve Dahl was fired from his radio station when they changed formats and they went to disco. So he did a little parody record called uh, called Do You Think I'm Disco? And he would play it, and he would also play disco tunes during his show on his new uh, his new radio station. And about halfway through, he'd always kind of blow it up. He'd play an explosion uh, sound, and he'd be blowing up whatever the disco record of that day was. Well... They decided to have a promotion at Comiskey Park for the White Sox. It was then owned by the uh, great baseball impresario of uh, Bill Vack and uh, his son Mike Vack was in the promotions department. And they decided to have a disco demolition night, um, and they would blow up records in between the uh, the games of a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. Uh, my brothers and I uh, got in early because we used to, uh, you know, it was a different different time. But uh, 
I have two older brothers. We were 13, 14, 15, and we'd go there before the game and fill the, uh, the cigarette uh, vending machines for uh, a friend of my old man's and uh, get in early and be able to kind of get the run of the place. Oh, that's fantastic. And, well, we were the first of about 70,000 people to show up at 35th and Shields. And by the way, just to give that a context, 70,000 people showed up. But how many people normally showed up without this promotion? I mean, this is not exactly a, a, a baseball team with a wicked winning uh, tradition at the time, Todd. That's right. It was about, uh, I'd say, average attendance was probably about fifteen or 20,000. So they did about 50,000 more than they than they had, uh, they would on a normal night, and they were completely ill prepared. Exactly, and, and these people, uh, let's just say, if they're coming to blow up a disco record, you got a very <laughs> different kind of crowd than you normally have for a baseball game. There weren't a lot of people scoring the game that. No, no scorecards. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what happens next. Uh, you know, there, you're, you're there. I mean, we we heard this harrowing tale of you almost getting decapitated by the <laughs> by this by this disc. Tell us it's what gotten, happened. It's gotten more. It's gotten more harrowing with age. I assure you. I'm sure. The, uh, well, the thing was, if you if you uh, if you brought a disco record with you, you could uh, hand it in uh, at the gate and get in for only ninety eight cents because it was 97.9, the loop, the radio station. Um, there were so many people, they just couldn't cope. They were understaffed, so people were just jumping the turnstiles, holding on to the records. And, you know, it kind of occurs to me now is, where were all these disco records coming from? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's so true. I, I think it was this, it was this it was sort of like an altar call for sinners to come and <laughs> hand, in their, hand in their records. but um, Or did they have to go buy them? I, I don't know. I, I, I got in before the gates opened, so I didn't, I didn't have to <laughs> donate one. But people held on to them, and they were just playing Frisbees with them all during the games. And, um, and then uh, between the two games, a local DJ came out, had a, a, a big cache of uh, disco records in center field and exploded them. Oh, the place had to go nuts. Did the place just go crazy? It, it did. Well, it was crazy to begin with. Then it got, uh, then it got out, completely out of order. People got on the, uh, stormed the field, <laughs> and they could not get them off. Now, um, Harry Carey back then, him, Harry Carey and Jimmy Parasol, two famous broadcasters, yep. uh, did the Sox games at that time, and they, they begged for people to get off the field, and there were... Uh, they got into the center field, into the bullpen, and pulled out the, the batting cage, and pulled out everything, and they're starting fires on there. My brother, who was a much braver soul than I, uh, went out into the field, and he and uh, his buddies were running the bases. Everybody was out there running the bases and sliding into home. And uh, he saw one guy who had cut a, a piece of sod out and fashioned a poncho out of sod. <laughs> With a knife, and you know, it was only years later that my brother said, "You know what? It just occurred to me is that guy showed up to a baseball game with a knife big enough to the cut sod." <laughs> yeah. so, he didn't know he was going to be on the field that night. He just happened to always have a knife with him, and I'm sure uh, he was not alone amongst the crowd that night. Too. Well, so, well, he, you know, we we love these stories. And by the way, we're talking about the sellout crowd. There was a raucous, overfull crowd. Of as many or nearly forty thousand people on outside on Shields Avenue, wishing they could be in there. That's right. I think the capacity of Comiskey at that time was about fifty. So there were another, you know, twenty to forty outside. For sure. Oh, that's just that's and, so beautiful. And well, so the, the, the strange thing about it too was, you know, we were all kids. You know, nobody. There was no parental supervision going on that night. So. <laughs> 
was a different different time. Ah, the good old days. As you say here, at the age of 13, you could go to a game without your parents. Oh, my goodness. Don't we wish we could have the good old days. Todd, thanks for this great story on your near-death experience at Comiskey Park. And we're celebrating this day in history, the day disco nearly died in Chicago. Todd Stump, join us more often with great stories like this. Take care. You got it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And in the same day, you get to hear two great stories, one pretty darn serious and one damn silly. More more Our American Stories after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts, from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene, the European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the Army, 
working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer. Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry. And here, I came along, and I had a sports car, and I come up with a tweed jacket, and I zip into my car with a bag of ties, and I go to the stores around the, around the area. And I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building. But he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too. Helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired, the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of, uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No stores had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like the things that I made you could not buy you couldn't find it and they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a they weren't wild but they were they were it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life you couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket now, a hacking jacket was one by the people that rode, you know, England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket, had flair on the side vest. So one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed, he goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England and they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hack, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. 
It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love. And boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did. Because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover 
of Time Magazine. He was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time Magazine, I knew Time Magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time Magazine. And the two, the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side, the impossible thing happened on Time Magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time Magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not, it was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family, I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, I can't believe this. I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world, trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style, 
a style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a, you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes, in a way, that um, had, a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream. A notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing? with these fashion shows. How am I doing it? I can't tell you, because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain tumor and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I work with that came at the office said, it was from another company. He said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company. I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better 
than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about everything here on this show. If you're interested in subscribing to our free and weekly newsletter in which we send you our five best stories, go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now we bring you a story that's become classic American folklore. The year 1947, the place, Roswell, New Mexico. Here's Jesse. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. In July of 1947, a man by the name of Mac Brazel heard an explosion somewhere on his ranch, roughly 75 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. The following morning, the 48-year-old ranch foreman left on horseback to investigate the sound that he had heard. Strewn about on a remote desert field was the wreckage of an aircraft unlike any he had ever seen. The rancher then called the local sheriff, who inspected the crash site. Not knowing what to make of it, the sheriff then took some of the wreckage back to the station before calling nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel was one of the very first to respond to the scene. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was, being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not be. It, it could not have been. It was Major Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, who ordered the recovery of the remaining wreckage that was left on the 8,000-acre ranch. Major Marcel described some of the material that he found. We found a piece of metal, uh, about, about a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't bend it, even with a sledgehammer would buzz off it. So, I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, something had crashed at Foster Ranch and scattered debris over several acres. While military personnel gathered the unidentified wreckage, Major Jesse Marcel then loaded his trunk with items collected from the site and drove back to the military base. But first, he would make a little stop along the way. The Major's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., was 11 years old at the time and would remember that night for the rest of his life. My dad was dispatched by the base commander, who was Colonel Blanchard, to go out there and, and collect some residue to see if this was a military aircraft or if it was a V-2 rocket from the White Sands Proving Grounds or whatever was crashed on this rancher's land. And, uh, and he did go out there along with a CIC agent, uh, Sheridan Cavett, who was, that was the forerunner of the CIA, I believe. 
And uh, so they picked up the res, you know, representative portions of the debris that was out there. So he's going to uh, drive it into the base that night. Uh, our house happened to be on the way to the base, but he realized there was something very extraordinary about this wreckage. And he wanted my mother and myself to see this because uh, he realized we'd probably never see anything like this again. So that's what he did. He <clears throat> did work a little bit out of his way to our house and uh, he uh, positioned some of the wreckage on the kitchen floor of our house, woke my mother and myself up so we could see what he collected uh, out in the desert there. And uh, it was one o'clock in the morning or thereabouts, very late in the morning. And, and he said, well, look at this. I want you to look at this now. I think this is parts of what they call, I think he said flying saucer. And, uh, and that had a very special connotation, not knowing exactly what a flying saucer was, but I realized it was extraordinary, whatever. And uh, he said uh, the connotation was this came from outer space. Outer space or not, the items brought home that night were highly unusual. Metal fragments, um, beams with strange letters or writing on them. Uh, yeah, I didn't keep any of it. Uh, people ask, well, why didn't you keep some of it? Well, I couldn't because it was part of the Air Force property. And uh, some people say, well, you brought, your father broke security by bringing this highly secret stuff to your house, but it wasn't classified at the time. Classified later, but it wasn't classified when he brought it to the house. Major Jesse Marcel then gathered up the wreckage and took it to Roswell Army Airfield. First Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public information officer at the 509th Bomb Group based in Roswell during 1947. What happened next was nothing short of bizarre. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. In essence, it said that we have in our possession a flying disc. It uh, was picked up on a ranch, and I can't remember if I said northwest of Roswell, brought into town by Mac Brazzle, ranch foreman uh, and the material was flown to higher headquarters 8th Air Force General Ramey. Newspapers ran headlines about the crashed flying saucer that came down 75 miles northwest of Roswell. William Brazel, son of rancher Mac Brazel who found the wreckage, remembers reading about it the following morning. I was not out at the ranch at the time and I picked up an Albuquerque paper, and here's my dad's picture looking at me, and I thought, well, I wonder what he's done now. So I went on to read the article, and I told Shirley, I said, well, I guess I better go out to the ranch, because they said that he, the Air Force had asked him to stay in Roswell. Anyway, they swore dad to secrecy, and I went out to the ranch and stayed until he got back. And I asked him what he got into, and, and I kept asking him questions. And he said, well, he said, I told the Air Force I wouldn't tell anybody. He said, you're probably better off without knowing. Regardless of being sworn to secrecy, the word was out. And radio stations all over the world began broadcasting reports of a crashed flying saucer. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week 
has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brazil was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disk looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying chopper to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. When we return, first-hand accounts from former military and civilian alike of the UFO crash at Roswell. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return now to Jesse and the site of the UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. The 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brazil was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Rockwell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. Shortly after these reports of a crashed flying saucer were broadcast, announcer Frank Joyce from radio station KGFL in Roswell received an interesting communication from someone claiming to be from Washington, D.C. I got a phone call. Well, I got a number of phone calls, but the one that really got my attention was purportedly from the Pentagon. There was young lady on the line saying, Colonel so-and-so, uh, this is the Pentagon calling. And this was in a few minutes of it going out on the wire. And the voice on the line says, uh, who is this? I tell him, he said, you put that story on, on the air about the flying saucers? And I mean, his voice was, you know, the type that really conveys menace and power. And I said, yes, I did. 
And he says, you're going to get in a lot of trouble uh, for this or made some, some threatening comment. And I said, look, I'm a civilian. You can't talk to me this way. You can't treat me this way. You can't tell me what to do in stories I put on the air. <clears throat> and he says, I'll show you what I can do. And bang, hung up the phone. The KGFL announcer wasn't the only one to receive a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be from Washington. George Roberts, the owner of the radio station, was also contacted. I got a call from Washington from one of the offices of one of the senators saying, look, if you put out any stories on this, this thing, you're going to lose your license. It's not going to be... Over a period of time, it's going to be the same day that we tell you that you're off the air. If these intimidating phone calls were in fact from Washington, why would the military in Roswell admittedly put out a press release about flying saucers? First Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge had been assigned to the 509th Bomb Group in 1947. He was one of several military personnel who was then told not to talk about it. Jesse brought some of the stuff into the intelligence office. Their material had some peculiar properties. For instance, it looked like Hershey bar wrappings. And, but you squeeze it up in your hand as hard as you could, let go, and it returned originally to the original shape, instantly. And uh, so we looked at it and played with it a while, and then everybody went back to work. Later that day, Boom. Nobody knows anything. You just shut up. Nothing happened, uh, etc. And when you're in the service, you do what they say to them. While military officials out of Roswell were distributing press releases about crashed alien spacecraft, the U.S. military would use Major Jesse Marcel to take the fall. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to... To, they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. Here again is Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge. What he had to show the press was really a weather balloon. This stuff was not a weather balloon, what he brought back. So he was forced to lie to the press, I would say. I don't think he was too happy about it, but you do what you're told again. You're in the service, you followed orders. And they were afraid of the American public panicking with this knowledge. I don't think that would have happened, but I, the word came down from up above and you do what it says. Could it have simply been a weather balloon? How could have all these experienced ranking military professionals have gotten it all so very wrong? Frankie Dwyer was a 13-year-old girl who was spending the day with her father, the firefighter, down at the station where he worked, when a state trooper came in with a piece of the wreckage. When I would wad it up, it was like I had nothing in my hand. 
I couldn't feel it touching my skin. It was real weird. Drop it on the table and it was just like water. They all seem to mention this type of metal that looks like aluminum foil with otherworldly properties, and many of them report that they were intimidated by officials soon after handling the debris. Here again is Frankie Dwyer. He had this club or stick or whatever it was, and he would, was beating it on his hand, and he would hit it. Every time he would say something, he'd hit his hand. And he said, I want you to know you were never there. I didn't understand what he meant, because I said, yes, I was. And he said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, I was. And he said, can't you get this through your head? You never saw anything. You were not there. You don't know anything. And he said, you know, this is a big desert out here. We can just take you out in the middle of this desert, and no one will ever find your bodies. He said, you'll be nothing but bones, and nobody will ever know what happened to you. And I told him I would not talk about it. And what about reports of alien bodies recovered from the crash? No. As far as I know, an alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either. And I want to know. The mortician for Roswell in 1947 was a man named Glenn Dennis. He too received a strange phone call in the middle of the night. Well, our mortuary had the contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also. But anyway, then I hung up. And then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for... Uh, taking care of bodies and laying out in the elements for several days. And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I've tried to find out who I was talking to. The mortician trying to get to the bottom of this strange request. His girlfriend at the time just happened to be a nurse who was working at Roswell Army Airfield the night they allegedly brought in the bodies. And it looks like what you see today, most of the little diagrams, you know, the four fragile fingers and the long arm, real short joint, the large eyes. She said the heads were almost completely demolished, but they could see they only had two orifices. They didn't have earlobes, they had two ear canals. The mouth was only about one inch. And that's the way she described it to me. And I was with her till about 11.30 that day, and then at 3.30 that afternoon, her supervisor called and said, your friend just been transferred out. And I had a serial number and everything else, but I never have found her this day. I've never made contact with her. So. People from all walks of life tell a very similar story. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Did officials at Roswell Army Air Base get it wrong when they told the media that they had a flying saucer in custody. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated 
that we had in our possession a flying saucer. Could all of these people simply have mistaken a weather balloon for a flying saucer? According to the official report from the Pentagon, that is exactly what happened. Air Force activities which occurred over a period of many years have been consolidated and are now represented to have occurred in two or three days in July 1947. Bodies observed in the New Mexico desert were probably test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research. The unusual military activities in the New Mexico desert were high-altitude research balloon launch and recovery operations. These are the stories of ordinary people who went to their graves swearing that what they had witnessed was not of this earth. Or maybe it was just a weather balloon. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.